Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode number 121, with a special guest, Wendell. How you doing, Wendell? How's it going? Thanks for having me. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're excited. Yeah. Wendell has a cool little device that we're going to be talking about, and this dovetails perfectly. We talked about how easy it is, and it's amazing how easy it is. And we'll talk about this some more to get started with AI in your home lab, where you don't have to upload your data to some company. You can start uh, deploying these, and. Uh, it's just going to be a fun, we're just going to riff on some home lab stuff today. We we don't have to have a really strong, we just have a couple ideas we want to talk about there, but I think it's going to wander in some good directions here because that, that little card that Wendell, uh, 70 watts, is that what you said? 70 watts. This is the RTX 4000 SFF ADA generation, which is a mouthful, but it's, it's new, but it's, it's an RTX 4000, 70 watts, so it doesn't require external power. It's half height. It is not single slot, unfortunately, because it's got a pretty, pretty good cooler but it's got 20 gigs of VRAM, ECC VRAM. And so this, if you want to run an LLM locally, like for Olama, 20 gigs, I want to run a 14 billion parameter model at real-time token, uh, real-time levels of token processing. This is amazing. Wow. Kind of makes me want to try it out. So I haven't, uh, haven't done that yet, but I, that should be something I should try out, uh, the large language models. But uh, so, uh, sorry, what was that called again, that device? This is a NVIDIA RTX 4000 uh, SFF ADA generation. That's one more mouthful. time. Can you say it one more time? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we will have to put that in the description. Yeah, Do you have yeah. a video on it yet, Wendell? Uh, no. For ones? I'm working on it. I, I, was, okay. I was not expecting to be impressed by this little thing, but it is... In a 70 watt power envelope, I am genuinely surprised how how fast it is um, hmm. for doing local stuff. Like if just if you just want to like load it up with Olama, have you have you messed with Olama? Yeah, it's, that's it's, what we yep. talked about last time. So that's why yep. I figured it's. I'm really impressed. I know Mistral's got a new one that's claiming I, I, it's uh, invite only. That's supposed to be rivaling ChatGPT four that you can run in your home lab. I haven't tried. I've tried the. Um, Dolphin Mistral, uh, the code in the Code Llama, and I'm getting better at it. I'm still very new to it because uh, I've been using ChatGPT because it's there, <laughs> and I kind of want to get off of the dependence because I'm always careful about any data that I upload to it. I'm make sure it's not anything um, that. So that's why I started playing with the local ones because I just I want to be able to have control over what goes into these things or not worry about what goes into them because I'm the one hosting it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and you can also start doing fun experimental things like giving it control over things in Home Assistant. So you could just say, hey, Home Assistant, did, was there anybody on the porch today? Or, you know, hey, <laughs> Home Assistant, like, I'm leaving now. Deal with that. And it's like, okay, let me turn the air conditioners off and whatever. So I haven't tried Neon yet, but that's something on my list. I'm not talking about like the, the Neon OS. Well, it is an OS. It's just not the KDE Plasma one. It's confusing. The one specifically for... Um, a replacement for the Mycroft software. Since oh, yeah. Mycroft, uh, well, it's not replacing. It's not made just for that, but it's like the um, chosen path forward. And I almost wonder if that would hook into that. So if I had my automated assistant have uh, be backed by a language model, then I think that would be a great interface to get through to talk to it and make it do stuff. Yeah, that's the great thing about Olama is that because it's just an API, you can do a little shell script or a little Python script or whatever you want to do. And uh, there is a guy that did a blog post. I think this kicked off Home Assistant's. I haven't looked into this, but it's supposedly there's like a Home Assistant hackathon or something for LLMs. Mm. I don't know if yeah. that's like, I, I just saw that somewhere and I was like, I need to go back and look at that. And I haven't gone back to find that. But somebody wrote a blog post on training their LLM to output direct JSON that they could feed into Home Assistant. And it was like, 
kind of the starting point that kicked off everything. And it's like, yes, that's this is the way. It, it's Star Trek level, like computer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a um, you know, a lot of the AI has to do with prompting. And I mentioned last time, uh, and it's a really cool GitHub project called Fabric by Daniel Messler. And I don't know if you've looked at it, but he's run an amazing job of building everything with a lot of really solid prompt engineering. For example, he's a security researcher, so he wants to, you got the news, here's a security problem. What he does is he actually takes it and can point it at news articles and it outputs into a standard JSON format so he can import it, so he can understand the vulnerability, what it, you know, so you can read between the lines and figure it out and it does an excellent job of analyzing it. It's kind of a, something you may not think about with LLMs, but it's not hard to tell them, say, hey, this like, the security research I was doing with this screen connecting, I actually just used the LM. I'm like, all right, here's the IPs. I just need all this outputted in CSV. Here's the input from Shodan with all the lists. Uh, we're going to filter mm -hmm. it by state. We're going to come up with a list. I need to know the uh, header for this and I'll put all this in CSV. And it made the list for me that I'm calling from, like, because <laughs> I'm not that great at scripting. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. The the all, up, up to now, I, I got to do something more clever because up to now, the most noteworthy thing I've done with, um, AI is I had chat, chat GPT explain the kill command in Linux as if it's being explained from or by a Klingon from Star Trek, and it's just it's <laughs> which gold. is the perfect it's use ab <laughs> absolute gold. But um, or um, the LS command explained by Regina George for Mean Girls is another fun one. But <laughs> as far as actually something productive, um, I've had mixed results, but it's definitely coming coming along. Um, as far as Chat GPT is concerned, I know that's not the um, we can't self-host that, but it is kind of like the precursor, I think, that gets a lot of people interested in this. And the next thing you know, they're running 10,000 servers in their basement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is uh, it is a little bit of an explosion. I mean, I the question for me is on for the curve that we're on, are we on like the 1960s? Like, look, this is a mercury delay line and we haven't invented transistors yet because things are accelerating and shrinking at such a rapid pace. And also... There's stuff like um, I've seen some really just mind-blowing demos of software like Neural Magic to take a to take these neural nets and sparsify them so that they run on CPUs because mm. you know CPUs it, it's fun it's like oh all of a sudden your 128 or your your 64 or 128 core x86 CPU is suddenly very useful for doing these kinds of things and also paring down the complexity of the neural net so that it. You know, it's like a 17 billion parameter model is almost as good as a 90 billion parameter model with the appropriate, you know, tuning and, and this kind of thing. And so the utility of these on it's going to be faster than what we saw even with like cell phones to go from like the suitcase phone to like the giant, you know, cancer brick phone to like what we have today is going to seem right. like a lifetime compared to how quick these, these things move, I think. I, I kind of agree because yeah. it's. It's become affordable to train these because someone was breaking down the costs. Uh, we had some when we had some more servers coming there for clients, but, you know, they make a pass through our office while we set them up. So we plan to do a little bit of testing on some of them. And it's interesting because uh, they're I'm going to put them in pseudo affordable. They're not outlandishly expensive. But even if you just rented the stuff in the cloud, someone told me it's cost around two grand to do each one of these training models. I'm like, that's not crazy. That's within realm of a business who wanted to train on their own data to build one of these customized models out, like you said, a, a scaled down, but let's focus it on. We're going to train it on data. We have two grand for training, not, not outlandish. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> it's amazing how, 
how it's going. I almost wonder if we're seeing the end or the beginning of the end of the keyboard and mouse as input devices. And I know there's lots of people yeah. who are like, you'll pry my <laughs> mechanical keyboard out of my cold, dead hands. I'm not talking about those people. I mean, just like the average, you know, non-techie just checks their email and, you know, keyboards and mice, I think. I, I mean, no, obviously it's more than that, but I feel like um, it, it's strange to me because as a kid, I would have thought by now we'd not have any input devices. We talk to our computers, but here we are, the keyboard and mouse. But now finally, like you're saying, the warp drive, or you just say warp drive, I was thinking warp drive. Um, we're talking about inventions and things and how it's uh, really ramping up. It is kind of, um, I think we are on the cusp of something with the AI. And I know a lot of people are rolling their eyes right now, but believe me, if uh, you know, we, we're not bandwagon people here. We don't jump on bad bandwagons and chase trends. Um, we um we get excited about something it's probably for a reason so this is some <laughs> cool stuff yeah this is this is the most exciting but it's it easily turns into a black hole and it's it's also uh it's also a, you know sometimes i feel like a parrot like I, I knew somebody that had a pet parrot and the pet the parrot was always obsessed with the reflection of themselves in the mirror oh, and wow. i I worry that some of the AI stuff is a little bit like the parrot. It's like, oh, this is a reflection. It's like, but it's not actually doing anything useful. Like I'm spending a lot of time with this, but like, is it really, is it like actually super handy? I, I don't know. Um, I think there's Outer Limits episodes and uh, probably um, other sci-fi shows that cover this topic in uh, detail. Yeah. About what, what exactly happens when it has a, it, it has an, a, a, you know, an opinion of mankind based on the data it ingested, but then it uh, thinks we're evil or something. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the yeah. test. This will set your mind at ease when you're playing with all these LLMs. Ask it to play a game of rock, paper, scissors and, <laughs> and tell it to go first. And then after you win 10 times in a row, ask it if it has any idea how you're winning. Yeah. It does. Oh, that's it, fun. It doesn't know. It's just like, I don't know. You seem really lucky. And it's like, okay, cool. Moving yeah, right along. There's, there's a lot of things it just doesn't understand. Uh, and I, I was looking over because I remember the name of the uh, article, but this is a article. I can add it to the description here. Um, it, well, research paper done at Cambridge, very recently published uh, like last week. And I took the time to read it because it really highlights that it's an assistive technology. And it's really interesting. One of the lines I pulled from it was, in a case of cosmic irony, AI is not trustworthy with facts and numbers. Like I love the, the person very realistic. It does respect, it does not respect rules. AI is, however, remarkably effective at acquiring knowledge, uh, acquiring tactic knowledge. Uh, rather than relying on hard-coded procedures, AI learns by examples, gains mastery without implicit instruction, and acquires capabilities that it was not explicitly engineered to possess. So they kind of go on of the whole purpose of the paper is go, this isn't the end of work. This isn't the end of the jobs. This is just another tool. And those who embrace it as a tool are going to have the most success. I mean, there's always somebody going, can I replace my entire department with AI? That's definitely the trend we're seeing push for, but that's not a realistic. But in, in the case of like I used it for this morning of parsing a bunch of data that I didn't really have time to write a script for, um, it does a great job of that. But it also screwed up on some of it because it just decided something. I looked at the output and said, you're completely ignoring something I told you to do. And I told it that. I said, you've ignored the curl dash K command, you know, the insecure, ignore the certificates. And it says, oh, I will fix that. And I told it to do it implicitly at the beginning. It just decided not to, which of course made it give me an error instead of the result I wanted. So it is kind of weird how it just does something on its own, even though you told it to do something else. But if you put it in the hands of an expert, someone who has a general idea what you need done, you understand where the flaws are. And it got me 90% of the way there. I just prompted it one more time to fix the stupid it did. And then I fixed it. <laughs> right. It, that's an uh, interesting thing that it's, it's interesting you bring that up because that's something I've noticed about running local models. 
And some of that, like, I guess the, what that's referred to is like the number of local tokens that are supported for context. And so um, I've noticed that with local models, you can set them up so that you can ingest millions of tokens to give it context. Like here is the entire code base. And I would like for you to look for these common security issues in, in the case of a, a, an AI coding model that has been trained by Meta or whoever. And it's it's surprisingly good. Um, there was, I saw, I need to, I actually saw this morning and I was going to read some more about it sometime today if I had time. Someone took their code repository and their GitHub issue queue and just used one of the local models that had an absurd token length. And they fed it their code base and they fed it their issue queue. And they actually got two or three useful patches out of that to solve those issues that were described in the issue queue. And it was little more work than ingest the entire code base for context, ingest the GitHub issue feed. And it's like, all right, let's get to work. What do we got to do here? And it's like, well, this might fix it. What do you think? And it's like, yeah, this is a good idea. Fixed. Done. Didn't really have to put as much work into it. Yeah, that is really cool. I, I think those are some of the edge cases, you know, just before I jumped down here and something I mentioned because I did a live stream about it was that there's a major flaw and a major tool used by a lot of people that is causing chaos at the moment. And uh, AI can do good fuzzing at things and help security researchers as once again, assist a tool to find silly things that they have overlooked when they've uh, wrote their code and, you know, leads to a big vulnerability and everyone having a panic attack over it. I think those are going to be really good future uses for it because we just don't yeah. have enough security researchers for all the software to get built out there. I mean, we have good coding practices now, but, um, the reality is the long tail of legacy keeps slapping us <laughs> because <there's, laughs> right. well, we know there's a new product that was written in a modern architecture, but this one written for 13 years ago still works. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, so um, I want to circle back, though. Yeah. What is the price point on that NVIDIA device there? Yeah. So, I was going to ask uh, the same thing. I think these are around $1,400. So you're still better off with a gaming GPU if you go that route, but very low power and very... Uh, very uh sleek yeah <laughs> 70 yep. watts like you're gonna it's like i'm gonna underclock a gaming gpu okay maybe kind of i mean but eh. yeah exactly i mean it's just so cool that some of the hardware that's coming out um especially considering you could buy a you know like a pci board with raspberry pis on it it's yeah. just like a crazy yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think the 70 watts matters a lot. One of the challenges with those super micro AI systems, um, and the one I, it's the same one I reviewed on my uh, channel, it's it almost 4,000 watts at full load. So we ran into two problems. First, we had to plug is four power supplies. So two power supplies plugged into one side of our lab, another one applied to the other side of the lab. Second problem is we left the door closed because it was so loud. And then we realized that the lab, which is a pretty big room, it's about a 20 by 30 room or so, it was really hot in there. <laughs> we're like, okay, the lab is now because we were, uh, running hash cap. We wanted to see just how many passwords we could crack and uh, which was amusing, but also we actually got, we were like, okay, I think it could be approximately 90 degrees in this room. <laughs> and it's winter here in Detroit for those that don't know. <laughs> it's what, well, I mean, is it winter? Because I don't even know what season it is this year from one day to the next. It's, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful today. I think we have like 55 degrees. We, we were at like 20 degrees the other day. We're back up to 55. So it's just like <laughs> random. It's like a random number generator is our forecast for this year. <laughs> just yeah. like throw a random number out there so what are some of like the do you have any hidden gems for home lab wendell like like some it could be something like that or anything else that people don't 
really realize they could use or anything that uh, we may not have talked about? I mean, what's new in Home Lab? Anything on your radar? Um, I really like the direction. So at the bleeding edge, if you're willing to get your hands dirty and that kind of stuff, I, I really like the direction everything is going in with Home Lab and Home Lab integration and like the proliferation of like standards compliant sensors where you don't need cloud connected stuff. And, yeah. and, and also the fact that there are some really amazing viable tools that will probably get a, a nice slick GUI in the next year or two for doing things like managing home security and cameras and asset protection, but also just things like, hey, the water is running and no one's home. That's weird. I should probably turn that off. Like, yeah, that kind of stuff, that kind of quality of life stuff is is really nice because you don't always notice. It's like, oh, that somebody, you know, the garden hose thing is leaking on the side of the building. I didn't, I never would have noticed that unless it was like, hey, the water's running at like three o'clock in the morning for like an hour. That seems weird. That's outside yeah, your usage pattern. The, um, yeah. I, and yeah, it's weird. funny to mention it. I just went on a full task around the whole house. I now have, I mean, they're so inexpensive. I think they're by zoos, the water sensors. They're inexpensive. They're all over my house. Uh, I have home assistants set up to do push notifications on my phone, my wife's phone. And uh, we've already had one get tripped and go off. Someone's good news. It wasn't actually a leak. Someone just tipped over uh, something under the sink and soaked my water sensor. So <laughs> it wasn't actually a sink because we got them. We put them under this. They're so cheap. I think they're like, I don't know. They were on sale for like 15 bucks. So I bought a yeah. bunch and um, you know, we had a dishwasher problem, but those little things like that, I don't want to trust some third party that maybe has something. And matter of fact, the battery life on these is people were saying it's like a year or two. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of great. And it all ties into a home assistant. Uh, they have Zigbee models, Z-Wave models. You, you know, I have Zigbee and Z-Wave on my home assistant, but I think you're right. Seeing a lot of these devices and I have a little, little one in my hand um, that I use just for automation, all these little touch buttons, and then you can program it. And I'm like, I have no cloud dependency. If the internet's out, whatever, I can control my home. And I never thought about this because I've never used any of the cloud ones. But one of the pe things people, my friends, my neighbors, because they're normal people who just use Alexa for everything, yeah. <laughs> and, um, they were impressed. They're like, when you touch the button on your phone, it's instant. Ours like delays. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah it probably makes sense that the cloud one sometimes delays. And they're like, yeah. sometimes we just finally get aggravated and turn the light switch on. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I touch it. It's like all local. So it's 100 percent like there's like this immediateness to it. I love that. We can't really sell the comment, uh, the internet's down, so we can't turn our lights off. That, there's <laughs> no one, nobody in the house that's going to feel like that's an acceptable thing to say. Like, what? We need yeah. the internet to turn off a light switch, uh, depending on how it's set up, obviously. But then, of course, light switches, you, you have them turn off and everything comes off the network. So you always have the spouse approval factor. If you live with somebody that they may not care about all this stuff, <clears throat> excuse me, but they want it. Simplified. So I thought about these, and I'm going to try them. These wall-mounted buttons that they're not like the normal. Like if you rent, you're not you're not wanting to do surgery on your electrical inside a house you don't own. So you I'll can get these the ones I got. <laughs> you know, battery-operated little things with the command strip. You just stick on the wall as a single button on it, and you just put a script behind the button and call it a day. But um, that's what I'm. That's something I'm going to be looking into as well. I know it's relatively entry level, but sometimes it's those simple things that make Home Assistant like hard to sell inside your own house because some people just think it's complicated. I'm still using the uh, the Lutron switches that are drop in 110 volt, but they have the optional like stick on battery operated ones, and mm -hmm. their buttons are reprogrammable. But you have to get the bridge to do it. And it still uh, works okay. with Home Assistant and everything else. I don't know. There's probably something better by now because those switches are a year or two old. But I'm hoping that 
you know, people sort of catch on is like, no, this should be like a five or 10 year solution. The, the people right. that early adopted the Nest thermostat is like, oh, by the way, we don't support this anymore. And it's like, it's a thermostat. Like, <laughs> well, then they're, they open sourced it, right? Right. They, they, <laughs> yeah. they, they, they no. jailbroke it, right? No. no. no I went with the, um, the in Brighton Z Wave ones, and they because there's no uh, bridging needed. They they connect fine, and they also uh, they have the ability to change them right inside a home assistant. You can change the settings on like they have a light. Do you want the light on when the light is on or off when the light is on? So you can like program little things to it. Um, I think you can program a couple other things on there. I thought was kind of cool, but the in Brighton ones are um, one of the things I liked about them. They offer a higher amperage switch than mm. some of the other ones. Uh, I had a couple spots because we are, I have it controlling my outside lights. I'm like, well, there's enough lights on the outside of my house that this is more than, this is a bigger circuit. Uh, and they have a couple options for that. So does Honeywell. Honeywell's in the Z-Wave game with some uh, higher amperage ones as well, which I like to see a name brand one. Like that's kind of cool. Z-Wave and no hub needed tied right into my home assistant. Yeah, Honeywell needs to hire an open source czar because Honeywell could take over the market. They've got the hardware engineering and they've got the the longevity and their their headspace is right. But whoever is running their software stuff has not. <laughs> it's just it's disappointing. It really is because they could they could be doing some amazing innovative things and it probably would pad their bottom line significantly given the wasteland of other devices that exist. Because you know, and this is the part that always puzzled me when companies don't just give in like, cool, we're a hardware manufacturer. We could we could actually make more money by stopping the software, pushing it towards home assistant and be like the home, like home assistant. Hey, guys, you guys are doing a great job. Keep making that great software. We're just going to make hardware because that's where our margin is uh, and, and yeah. kind of work like have a home assistant list, like have something if it wants to tie to the, the usual stuff. But I think you're right. There, there's a lot of companies that could really seize the moment and say, this home assistant thing's got some traction. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah. And one thing I thought I think is kind of strange about that. I, I I could see home assistant becoming like a standard, but I'm surprised it isn't by now. I feel like it will be, and it kind of already is in a way. But it's like Android came out, and handset manufacturers realized they don't have to design an operating system. Well, they have to tweak it, obviously, but they they have a starting point already made, and it, it kind of took off. Well, kind of took off. It really took off. Android's huge. And it's in everything. And Home Assistant can, you know, be pre-installed on devices and things like that in the same way. But and it is happening. It's just not as much as I thought it would be by now. But I could totally see it becoming the Android for home for home automation, essentially. It, that would be kind of a neat. I like that in concept. I, I think yeah. I think what's going to happen is like. Home Assistant is probably going to take over the universe the way that Linux took over the universe, basically everywhere yeah. but desktop. And it's like, it's right. Android. Well, it's Linux under the hood, but it took a billion-dollar company putting a $5 million UI on it at first to make it like, oh, this is now palatable and acceptable. And so somebody 100% is true. Yep. probably people, going to do that. Yeah, well, people hate change, which is, you know, you know, just kind of getting off my ear, the Linux desktop will never happen soapbox. It's like... People, in my mind, they're like, well, based on this statistic and this statistic, it's not working on the desktop. No, 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 no. People hate change, period. Well, that's where, that's an opportunity because you're not you're not taking down uh, the right. current dominant company that's doing home assistant. Home assistant is something still right. definitely for us nerds, but definitely outside the nerds. There's not that many people. Like my neighbors, maybe they have a couple light switches tied to it because it's simple and they like tech a little bit, but it's not the average mainstream. So it's still greenfield out there to actually build this, I think. <laughs> there's right. a there's there's totally a cottage industry of like if you want to be a home alarm installer, you know, it's like, oh, this is the yeah. home alarm installer for whatever. 
it totally could be a cottage industry to just be like, oh, this is the home assistant installer for blah, 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 for high-end homes or or whatever. And you just have an LLM yeah. you talk to, and it's just like, you know, hello, house, I would like to listen to music. And it's like, okay, let's do that. And then it just, you know, does it and follows you around. And it's not cloud-connected. There's no privacy. It doesn't remember things. It doesn't have a concept of rock, paper, scissors. So, you know, you know, it's reasonably yeah. safe. It's not going to try to kill you in your sleep. <laughs> it doesn't know why it would do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, that, but also like at the low end for home lab, um, I've been really impressed that tail scale hasn't gone evil. Like tail scale has been really amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's like, I want to run my own self-hosted documents and my whole own self-hosted thing. And it's like, great. Let's encrypt with the domain level authorization so you can get SSL certificates behind a firewall and tail scale and done. It's like you can run your own, like, oh, yeah. why not? Um, I'm, I'm shocked. I, I, there's people in the waiting, though, because I've, I've been in contact and talking to the developers over at NetBird, and they basically copied everything Tailscale does, but they give you a ability to self-host a control plane. But it's one of those things like it's going to be hard because Tailscale is undeniably they, – they've been a good company. I mean, they even took the time to contribute code to Headscale because they care. <laughs> like, I, I've always been – kind of impressed by that with them and uh but if, you know from an ease of use i recommend it to home lab people all the time i'm like here do this tail scale problem solved <laughs> yep uh, yeah tail scale is awesome I, I feel like i'd use it more if i left the house <laughs> you know because it's like I, i'm just going to bridge things internally but for uh, bridging something to a cloud instance is um pretty cool but one thing i want to plug before i forget because we're talking about you know being in control of things and hosting things uh, why you want to host or maintain your own system. If you don't know why, watch um, episode or season 11, episode seven of the X-Files. <laughs> if you watch that episode, you will absolutely understand fully by the end of that episode why you have to be in control of your IoT and all the things, because I guarantee you um, that's the conclusion everyone will come to watching that episode. It's like the best example of, of this. It all starts because they didn't leave a tip on their meal. Um, with the automated uh, meal delivery thing at the beginning, and then chaos ensues from there on. It's fun. Yeah. Or look at the Wise Cam incident yesterday. So <laughs> oh, that's simpler. Yeah. Yeah. But any uh, X Files fan, way to go for episode seven. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. But um, yeah. Tail scale. I uh, back to the subject anyway. Tail scale. I would. Uh, I'm going to probably sit down and and work with that a lot more because I feel like you know bridging a VPS to the local network is a great use case for that. I think that's probably what I'll start with. Yeah, I think um, it's very freeing it, that knowing that you can confidently run like next cloud and you can be a little lax with the security updates. Yeah. Oh, you don't right. have to be cutting edge because it's all behind there. And the, the, where Tailscale's advantage right now is, and, and granted, uh, thank you for NetBird for being, doing this. They took the time to publish on Google and Apple. So you have device level stuff, which is good. That's Those are the only ways, like that is the minimum bar right now because Tailscale said it. <laughs> like You have to have a really good free plan. You have to have integration with all the devices that people use. In, uh, that is sometimes the challenge with some of these companies, especially the open source ones is actually going through the trouble of getting something published in app stores. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's head scale, but then with head scale, it's like, yeah, it's exactly the problem. It's like you can't use head scale because there's no published apps unless you DIY and sideload it yourself. And it's like, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, fun thing yeah. though, then this is where back to saying tail scale is not evil. I thought this was so nice of them. They, you used to not be able to change on the app store. What, if you downloaded directly from the app store, not sideloaded, you couldn't change where the 
uh, head-end server was, they added an option. They had an update where they added it. And the only reason to do this was to allow competitors. I mean, that is... <laughs> <laughs> like they oh. did something that's against themselves, so to speak, that lets you switch what server so you can host it. Because they don't offer a self-hosted option at all, but Headscale is the only other option you have. So they actually, if I think you had to do, there's instructions that Headscale has something like you got to tap it five times in the spot, and then it brings up a menu. But the fact that that exists and they documented it means they're, you know, that's a cool feature. Yeah, Telscale yeah, is more, the whole model, I, I told Tom this, I don't know if I ever said this on air, but back when I first started and I knew absolutely nothing, uh, this whole networking model that we have now with tail scale, zero tier, uh, it's like how I thought networking would work when I did not know how networking works. I thought, oh, it's probably just a piece of software everyone installs and they just talk to each other. And then, yeah, that was it. I mean, yes, that's uh, the TCP IP layers underneath, but it's just like. It's disrupting wide area networks. We don't even need like like an AT and T line like we had in, you know twenty years ago between buildings that cost like a fifteen hundred a month Dark per fiber link or something. Oh. It's just, um, or even you know that's for a slow connection. And now we have things like tail scale. Like we could basically create a wide area network in our basement with, mm -hmm. for nothing. Just an, incredible to me that we have that ability to do that now. Yeah, I, I'd always read the promise of like certificate-based authentication as, you know, like when I first read the IP spec, IPsec specification, I was like, oh, this is going to be great because you can get ubiquity. This will be like SSL, but you have a different mechanism for sharing the certs and like you can have this kind of secure functionality on the internet. And that's not what it, that's not what it ended up being at all. So it's like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, no, is no. uh didn't didn't really work out that way, but we're getting there now. Well, you know, Hamachi started a lot of this, the original Hamachi network that we all used. And they oh, went, right. That they were the first ones to do this. Uh, and oddly, they used to use a public IP space. At the time, it was, I mean, it was technically public IP to the RFC, but it wasn't in use. So they get away with it for a while. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's absolutely the case. So I'm trying to think, I don't, I, what else is on the, anything else uh, that, that you know, is on the radar coming out or even anything on your channel that we should look out for that, that you're about to review other than obviously what you just uh, told us about a little Nvidia box, a um, little Nvidia box. I'm going to go to GTC. And so and take a look at the stuff that's going on there because there's some, there's some, you know, everybody's, everybody's hot for AI and, and yeah. everything's taking over the world. But for me, for the home lab, what I see AI is doing is giving people more agency and, and control over stuff. Like we're in this weird limbo where everything is kind of consumer hostile because every yeah. everybody wants everything to be a subscription. Right. You know, it's like right. line must go up, line must go up. We insist yeah. on line going up. Up into the right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, it's never yeah. it's like I want to DIY something. You've never it's like, okay, the large language model is going to help you change out your dishwasher or the large language model is going to help you, you know, refinish your deck or the large language model is going to help you do whatever you would normally, you know, hire somebody else to do. It's going to be transformational for the economy at both the microscopic and macroscopic scale, but it's also going to create a lot of business opportunities. And it's also going to create, like, it's going to make the internet unusable probably because the same incentives that exist now for blog spam, it's like, I'm going to write a tutorial on like how to do this thing. And it's like, I'm just going to go to a large language model and be like, write me a tutorial for this. And I'm going to copy paste it to the web. And then Google's going to come along and be like, oh, this looks like a reasonable tutorial for doing this. And I'm going to rank it really highly. And then just everything becomes unusably bad. Yeah. 
And that's unfortunately, um, 404 Media just did an article on this about how bad it's getting. And they called Google out. And it's kind of been a fun back and forth that Google was fighting with them on Twitter. <laughs> and they're like, we're journalists. And we're just pointing out the fact that the worst articles are now popping up to the top that are clearly written by undoubtedly some garbage language model yeah. that just keyword stuff this way you know it's a, the old way of doing it was keyword stuffing but essentially massage this to look like an article that should be above other articles that just shouldn't and uh, kyle hill did a really good video a deep dive on the problem with these auto-generated video systems uh that are doing it i don't think uh we're being done any favors with the latest open ai uh release of seymour what is it called the the new video generative thing that OpenAI just released. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cora yeah. or something? Samora or something like that. It's got some weird name. Yeah. Um, so, okay, yes, I agree with you. But if, if you pull this thread out, like, don't don't look at it down here. Step back and look at the, 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 we, the three of us, have a unique opportunity that we didn't have before. You see, Google being in the middle of distribution and search and everything else, and then being able to sell ads based on that, they, they held all the cards. And so like, if I wanted to run an ad or advertise something on my website and my rates were you know $5,000 an ad, Google could observe someone going to my website and then going to grandma's cookie blog. Now grandma was willing to right. run ads for $100. And so right. Google could say, okay, I can get that ad for, those, for that cohort in front of who you want for 100 bucks and uh not five thousand dollars and so google could make a bunch of money on that with ai and everything being a trash fire in terms of content we have the power again as publishers like if we create content oh, okay. or if we are known or if it's just like yes this was blessed by the three of us or the five of us or the ten of us or whatever in our cohort then that is suddenly more valuable again and we don't need middlemen to sell that and we don't need we, we just like with the home assistant stuff is like it's a genuinely good product the reason i like it yep. is because it is less human suffering for the people that use it as <laughs> compared with say a nest thermostat or the alexa smart assistant like the hardware in alexa i happen yep. to know one of the guys that works on the alexa hardware the hardware there is incredible there is unbelievable engineering and computer science that is in signal to noise like it's just insane but the hardware is like, I would like to run this and connect it to my local thing. And maybe there's some benefit for Amazon there. Like, willing, I'm willing to spend 200 bucks on the hardware because it's that good. Uh, no, yep. no, you can't. You can't unlock it. You can't do any of that. And so there is this huge sea change where we are going to seize control of the publishing and take over all of this stuff. And so when you look at it microscopically, this, the shift can only be that content from published from people that you get to know is the trusted content. There's no alternative. There's no end game. I, I agree with that. And and it's frustrating for me. I run into the same thing with, you know, tech articles or after work is over gaming articles where they're obviously written by AI and it, it they just drag on and on and on. It's like, I'm trying to figure out how to beat quest number 45. And then I look it up and it's like, <laughs> why quest 45 is important. The history of the design of this quest, the person who thought it was a good idea, the company behind the game, the birthday of the second in command of the company followed by at the very end, the thing that you actually went there to look for. And it's so obvious, like you read the, that it's so robotical that it was just, people realize we could just flood articles out there and that worries me a bit but i feel better knowing because i agree i think you you need to have that 
persona, like a person around the content, whether it's a blog post or it's a, a video that you're getting information from a person who has took their time to vet the information, just like you were saying. And um, that, that makes me feel a little bit better because I, I do feel that we, once you lose that human factor completely, then it, it becomes invalidated, in my opinion. You remember the old days of the internet when you had page rank and people were buying domains and then it was it was like, you know, this domain is turned into something else. We're we're going to go back to that. Like the the response from yeah. Google, the band-aid from Google is to just look at their history of all the domains and be like, crap. And then okay, Tom's hardware and this and this and this historically those were good. And so they're going to get a huge boost. Um and all of the new sites and all the new players, they're going to be locked out, which is really kind of sucks. But for us, I feel like we would take people under our wing and into our community and be like, yes, so-and-so has written an amazing guide on blah, 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 and you should check it out because it's actually legit. And so we will be able to combat some of that. But Google's response to this can only be to retroactively increase the value of stuff. So it's like, I'm going to be getting game guides from Kotaku again? What? This doesn't even make sense. (laughs) What, What world is They've already pivoted away from that kind of content. I'm still mad about joysticks shutting down so many years ago, but that's just me. That's yeah. such a great site. Site, but but yeah, I think that you know everyone just we watch sci-fi, even people that aren't into tech, and then we think that we're going to have um, Ultron or something out of this, and then you know <laughs> it's just going to be a really bad situation. But I, I just feel like it's more of a um, query and response system than anything else. You know, you give it a query, it returns something to you, and it's kind of like um, extending our capabilities as humans. Like maybe it's just going to cut down time to program a home lab because you can just explain how you want it done. And obviously there's going to be issues you can go back in and fix, but get things done a lot quicker than we could by ourselves by extending our capabilities even further. I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Well, I would say too, I, I kind of took a cue from you, Wendell, a uh, number of years ago when I was like looking at forums, I use the same forum software you do use discourse, right? You're yep. still using that. Yeah. Um, and this is one reason I created my own forums so I could host it myself, manage it myself, be the one in control. And now five years after running them, I had to move servers because the load got really high and uh, that's exactly the result I wanted. I'm, I was actually looking, I get about 50,000 unique visitors a week and 6 million hits across there. And I know yours wow. is substantially bigger than mine. <laughs> a lot of fun but see that but it's also content so like a lot of our community also is like hey we want to do discord let's do discord and there's a lot of enthusiast communities that are in discord because it's like instant response like you can get a thing you can get instant response but that's terrible for knowledge capture it is and that's one of the reasons I, I've doubled down on this. I've seen a few other um, EPOS Vox had made a couple of rants about it going, quit sticking all your data in discourse. Like it's not the place to put it. Put it on a public forum where others can, without signing up, just research and find it. If people want to sign up and participate, they can. Yeah. You create the watering hole of good information. Like there's cruft all around us. Uh, let that AI stuff do it. If you know, you go to the level one tech forums, Wendell has really good write-ups on any of the things that you reference, which I think is important. And these are some of the cues I took as a creator going, "How I like what Wendell does. He talks yeah. about this project. He talks about the code for this in a detailed step-by-step is all in the forums. Perfect. Other people can participate and iterate on it as well once they become participants. And I, I think it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's, it's not just that. I mean, it's any more... Like, it is mind-blowing. So we've got the launch of, like, the new Threadripper 7000 series stuff. And the Threadripper 7000 series stuff, like, there are so many, like, over $10,000 builds in our forum. It's like, good Lord, this is crazy. This is (laughs) – but it's lessons learned and shared stuff. There's lots of weird things. Like, if you want to use Suspend, like, S3 Suspend, a lot of power supplies don't actually have enough Suspend standby power to keep eight channels of DDR5 registered ecc memory powered well (laughs) 
That's like, an interesting problem that I didn't think about. Yeah, and so like we actually have one guy who uh, destroyed his power supply, only the five volt standby current, and so everything kind of still works, <laughs> but it won't post. So, like you turn it off, it's a real hard time. Use to get... a ballpoint pen trick to turn it on then, or yeah, yeah well, and then you got to clear the CMOS and then bringing it up, and it's just like oh, and it turns out it's because the power supply standby current was insufficient. It nothing to do even with S three suspend. It was just like. Their, their power supply can only handle like an amp or two of standby current and you need like three amps. And it's like, well, if you're getting, you know, if you're spending three or four thousand dollars on it, get like a 1200 watt power supply that's brand new. Like get a Here's new a good power question. supply. It's 2024. Why does suspend and hibernate still suck? And I'm looking <laughs> at every operating system here. Yes, Linux has issues, I know, but I've had problems with suspend on every operating system. And how, why is it in 2024? I can't like shut my computer off, you know, like hibernate style, turn it on and boom, my stuff is there and it's ready to go. Um, I mean, we started working on this. And then when you go in, into the trenches of Linux and you look at like, um, I like suspend then hibernate. It's my one of my favorite ways of doing it. It suspends, but if you let it let it suspend for too long, it wakes up and then it hibernates itself so it can retain this battery. It's really cool. And the Linux kernel supports this, but they kind of just stopped and it's in limbo and it's not default anywhere. We, and your graphics are we working on that. Back up. <laughs> at least with GDDR or GD, at least with registered DDR5. So when, when the, when the industry is bringing up registered DDR5 or DDR5, it's registered servers first. It's always servers first. Right. And then they try to get it working in the context of desktop and mobile and everything else. And so things, things change. But uh, in in desktop, they never figured that servers would ever want to do S3 suspend. So like S3 suspend in the context of like a server motherboard has basically never worked. Oh, right, right. That does make a lot of sense, too, because sometimes I think about the wasted power. If, a, you know, companies only operating eight to five, I don't know, they don't even have a website. Maybe they're just a local store or something. Um, well, they still need a website. But the point is, if you have a server that you're not using 24-7 and it's not a 24-7 operation, turn it off. Like, it's no one's even signing in. Um, if they can suspend, that saves a lot of power. But if everybody thought about that, the power grid savings would be massive worldwide. If, if you know, just the small percentage of companies that don't need a 24-7 operation just turn their servers off, but then suspend. I could see why that'd be hard on servers. But I could also see a benefit there, too, if we could just get it to be reliable. I really want to start a blog about all the things that are terrible with all of the different operating systems in like a funny and humorous way. Like, I don't know how to, I need like just a punchline kind of thing or like, like a one liner. And there's so many, there's so many, and it's hard for me to think of them off the top of my head, but like, okay, on windows, when the first, when the system first wakes up, this is why I thought of it. You have to like swipe the screen or do something like if I can't just hit enter, wake the machine and then type my password. That is so. Yeah. I thought about making a video one one time, and I, I think I'll never do this because of the YouTube algorithm will make sure nobody ever sees it if it's not directly Linux related. But I just thought about like like it just reminded me because I thought about all the annoying things that we deal with that we never talk about that are just small little problems. Like we copy paste, we copy text, it doesn't paste. We copy it again, it works. We move on. But why didn't it work the first time when you know you hit the copy button or you're using your mouse and you run it into your coffee mug and click something you didn't mean to click or, <laughs> you know, all these little tiny things that we yeah. deal with using computers. Day by human day. interaction with digital is hard. <laughs> give too many people anxiety, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because the computers do that anyway. But then uh, we also can't figure out suspend. So 
yeah, yeah, I like the idea of you open the thing and it's on. Like that should be like right. less than a one second operation. That's how it was in the dawn of like, I want to give people ancient machines. Like I want to give the engineers and the software people working on this. Like here's an HP 200 LX from 1993. The suspend resume experience should be identical on modern hardware. The input latency should be identical on modern hardware. You hit on, it's on. You hit off, it's asleep. And yep. if it needs to wake itself up and then go to like deep sleep later, that's cool. Just hide it from the user. Like how hard is this? Come on. Why are we still rebooting operating systems anymore? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, why? Why do we need to reboot a server or your desktop laptop nowadays? Um, I never would have thought we'd still be doing that, but here we are. And, but I also never thought we'd be using mice, but we're still yeah. using mice. So I really want somebody to put an LLM into the desktop organization thing because I find myself like when I need to switch gears mentally, I want to switch gears quickly. And workspaces is kind of useful for this, but I also want to save and restore the entire state of the workspace, including browser tabs. And so it's just like, right. I can't work on this anymore. I need to save the state of this. And my gosh, if I could move that state between a mobile machine and a computer or like the computer at this desk and the computer at another desk and the computer somewhere else, and I could just be like, boop, and then all of my stuff would go to the other machine, I would be so happy. You brought up tabs and I, it's a, it's a pet peeve of mine. I don't think very many people will share this, but it'll be kind of funny if it ends up being a, a thing where it's called tab sync, but it isn't. Okay, I think of sync as, you know, like sync thing. I save a file on my desktop and it appears on my laptop and I edit it on one and then it syncs to the other. That's syncing, okay? Being able to go into your history and then query the tabs that were last opened the last time you had your laptop open last Tuesday, that's yep. not syncing. I want to open a tab in my browser and have that same tab automatically open on my other computer. And when I close that tab, on that computer, I want it to automatically close on the other one. I want an exact one-to-one -one duplicated browser tab experience, but nobody, the closest thing we have is workspaces and browsers, which is uh, my favorite obsession in browsers, but we don't have true tab sync and I wish they'd stop calling it tab sync, it's so, not. So I, I have this for certain projects that I work on like one or two days a month. And my solution for this has been a VM with hardware accelerated graphics running on a server that I RDP into. And it's it's usually the RDP protocol on Linux because the RDP protocol on Linux with right. hardware acceleration, which requires patches and jumping through and a lot of headache is an amazing and fast experience. Whereas the RDP experience out of the box is horrible and awful and no one like, no one understands what problem they're trying to solve with the RDP with the whole like, oh, it's a local login. Oh, it's not a local login. It's a remote log. Like no one understands. Right. Right. And uh, the only thing that I think makes that a problem, at least when I try it, is watching a YouTube video. That's that's going to be the thing that is going to have to be on my local computer, because at least for me, I've never had that work. Yeah, well. that's not the best experience. If you do the hardware H.264 acceleration, it is seamless and it is low latency. And like once you experience hardware accelerated RDP, you don't on, go back. Yeah, you're not going to go back. It's it's and it's just like, oh, I had no wow. idea. Yeah. And so like if you want to save the state of your like how I'm saving the state of my workspace is literally the entire machine. And so it's just like, oh, I had a bunch of tabs open that were research or mm -hmm. uh, I was looking at an academic paper paper on like RXV or whatever. And it's there. It's still there. And I trust that it's there. And I trust that an update or something isn't going to wreck it. It's all, it's just there. Like it's there on that machine. And it's easier for me to just log into the entire machine and the, the state of the machine is there. Yeah. Someone brought up uh, Vivaldi and I, I, I'll 
you know touch on that real quick. Have you guys used the the newer style workspaces in any browser so far? No. It's so transformative. Like like Firefox doesn't have it, but I you know other browsers do. Like Opera, Vivaldi, they have it. I think Chrome has it, but I don't know. I don't use Chrome often. But imagine workspaces in your browser, like you have workspaces on your desktop. So I have a workspace, for example, system administration. So I click on it, and then my Proxmox console, TrueNAS console, whatever's there. I switch to my reading workspace, and all the articles I'm reading are there. And I can switch back and forth. And when I do, all the tabs disappear, and only the tabs that are in the other workspace appear. And you could just keep switching back and forth. Hmm. I think Safari uh, supports this as well, but uh, I have a bug report for a wish list in Firefox to get them to adopt this because literally everyone else is, but it's the closest we come. And so someone mentioned Vivaldi and I just wanted to yeah recognize that does have that workspace feature. I feel like it's the closest we do have to a true tab sync experience, but workspaces in browsers is just, I feel like it's the new, like how tabs revolutionize browsing in a way. I feel like workspaces is going to be like the, the next thing like that on that level. If only Firefox would implement it, darn it. Yeah, I I want that not just for the browser. Well, I mean, okay, if you live in the browser, like if that's accelerating our browser only future, where like the browser does everything, which is where it seems to, where Microsoft seems to be going with all their stuff. Yeah, which is fine ish, I guess. But I want the whole. I need I need the state of the whole desktop, like my terminal right. windows, my SSH connections, you know, everything. Yeah, I like all of that to just be like I don't. It should not. I've gotten to the point where I can context switch faster than the computer, and that is really annoying. Like, <laughs> good point. Yeah. The only thing that I feel like comes close to what you know we would want is like having multiple users on your computer with fast user switching, and every user has different apps open. You can switch back and forth, but that still doesn't solve the problem of. And I know we're complaining because it's like, how long does it take to boot your computer? I get it, but at the same time. You add up all these small, little, tiny, inconsequential things, and it adds to a bigger frustration. So yeah. the more seamless things are, the better overall things can be. And I think that's why we care about these things, because you know we think of it like this can be better. The average person thinks of it like, well, that's the way it is. That's the difference between people that are not techies and people that are. We want it. We want to see it better. Uh, everyone else either complains about it or they don't, but they still at the end of the day exactly. we want to be better the world the way it is i want there's a way i can reshape it to be but right. i think we'll probably leave it at that because we've gone on for about an hour here <laughs> this is Sorry. Great. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no. no this is all good topic it's i i really enjoyed this <laughs> also the the screensaver thing in gnome it's like one minute increments to 15 minutes and then off and it's like really guys come on <laughs> That's still a yeah, thing. Well, Why is that like we started on GNOME because GNOME has so many hidden features and things in there. Like <laughs> this is gonna put people in a rabbit hole. Like, and I'll ask you, Wendell. I might have told you, so you might know. Did you know that you can name your workspaces in GNOME? No, I didn't know that. Is okay. this workspace one, two, three, four? Right, that's what it is. Now there's no visibility in the GUI anywhere, no settings, not even in the tweak tool. You will not, there's no such option. But if you go into GCOMP. You can go in there and you could type a string for each of the workspaces. <laughs> and it looked like someone started working on this and probably, presumably, was going to have something exposed in the in the GUI so you could change this. And then, I don't know, they just moved on to something else. But the framework is there. You can name your workspaces. Which and amazing. I used Ansible to name my workspaces. So I could say, this is my sysadmin workspace. This is my email workspace. And have them actually labeled as such. But it's like they started and they stopped. So there's so many settings in GNOME. And my point is, with the screensaver thing, I wouldn't be surprised if you could probably adjust it down to the minute if you 
go through you know the settings under the hood. Yeah, no, so you can. Speak. Yeah, you, you can. can. Okay, see, that was an yeah. assumption, and I was right. Why was I right? Because I've been fighting GNOME for years. So yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm watching what System seventy six is doing with Cosmic, and it's yeah. just like I get why why they're working on Cosmic after experiencing the like. Why can't I have a twenty minutes? Why can't I have an hour? Because sometimes. You know, I get distracted by things and it's like, I need this to stay on for an hour so that I know it's like, oh, that computer's on. I need to finish the thing that I was doing on that computer. And that's just because I'm yeah. so scattered. Yeah. I remember I'm when really looking, cosmic, for the, looking forward to the whole yeah. cosmic release. This is oh, something something we haven't seen in a Linux desktop in a while. Some true excitement. I mean, I'm here for it. <laughs> I've asked them like three or four times if you could please make it so you can name your workspaces on demand. I would really appreciate it. They said they're interested and they might do it. I'm not going to, I can't speak for them, but it was funny when the Pop! OS tiling came out. And I remember I was there at the, not when they first came up with it, but when they were announcing it. And it was, you know, Carl had this ultra wide monitor and he's running GNOME and didn't like the way GNOME, and I don't like the way GNOME is on a monitor of that size. Because you do split, like you tile a window on the left and the right in GNOME, you have like just your monitors cut in half. But they started, some people started using Sway because, you know, that that worked out better than that, that like, let's put this in Pop! OS. We're not even using our own uh, OS. We want to. So they put it in there because, you know, they they scratched a niche as so many other things did. And then next thing you know, you have uh, Sway inspired tiling in Pop! OS. Yeah. Yeah. It's And that's that's the nice awesomeness of open source. But I think if we're going to ever have the year of the Linux desktop, it's going to take somebody that has this kind of a mindset to become a benevolent dictator like like Linus. And it's like, this is what the desktop experience is going to be, and it's going to make sense. And then people are going to use it and say, oh, this is amazing. That's the that's the, that's the the cult of personality that Apple has. Like Apple, it's like somebody inside right. Apple is doing this kind of stuff. It's like, no, we will obsessively get the latency on this down, or we will obsessively worry about this thing. And it's like, there are people like that that'll do that in the in the community but then they're also kind of hard to work with sometimes and so it's kind of like we don't That's ever that. yeah so I, I tell people a lot like like I'm, i bring this up every now and then like you know what would it take for the year of the desktop to happen it's not going to happen and you know in the, the way i see it i could if i could conceivably in another universe make a linux distro that is 100 compatible with every app that has ever been released i don't care if it's ios android Windows, Linux, let's say it's the epitome of compatibility and everything runs twice as fast. It's like the best thing ever. No one's going to change to it. Why? Yeah. Because it's change. And I don't care how good it is. The minute you introduce change, the average person's at, well, at work, it's a work tool. They come home, you know, they socialize, they relax or whatever. Um, they're not trying to introduce like a whole lifestyle change around their computer. And the average person doesn't talk about operating systems. So as much as I'd love to see Linux take over the desktop, um, I feel like Linux is happy where it is. It's not losing any, Linux isn't losing any sleep about its inability to saturate the desktop. So I think we're fine. But <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just my, my opinion on the matter. It's, it's people overanalyze things. It's just as soon as you introduce change, unless you have a company like Apple to tell you why you need this change, nobody's going to go for it well let me let me turn the conversation i, I don't know we're out of time but this is this okay. maybe maybe yeah. like homework go right ahead turn the turn the conversation on its on its side a little bit if you had an easier ability to do the kinds of customization that you want like the screensaver thing which i had to dig in and find like you apparently mm -hmm. had a, had the itch for the workspaces yeah then maybe we would see more of a it's like it's easier to do the app development it's easier to do the customization it's easier to do abc xyz if you look at open source office suites like open office 
like the code base and the methodology and like modern, like how we do software development in 2024 and how that project is structured, way different. If we right. had a desktop environment that like, if we just did, uh, what is it? Joel Spolsky had a word for this where you do the transformation. Like you don't change anything. You just go and you do cleanup and, and you just mm -hmm. make it the modern process. If we did that, if we did a pass like that on GNOME or something else like that, so that you don't have to be a 17th level wizard in order to make these kinds of customizations, I think that is what will lead to the year of the Linux desktop because suddenly it becomes way easier for everybody to do this. LLMs might do that. It's like asking LLMs, like, I want to customize my stuff. Or it's like, this is weird. It seems yeah. like I'm getting an extra frame of compositing what's going on. And it's like, oh, you can do this or install this patch from the sky and it fixes it. It's like, oh, okay. And I think it's a really good yeah. point because if you have to learn the technical debt in order to make the modification, like, oh, you can't touch the hour thing because there's a chain reaction that happens when you touch it. Uh, those are the problems, right? Once you get into kind of a modern code base, you're like, oh, it's structured well. It makes it a lot easier to develop on that framework. Yeah. And yeah. giving people better tools to be able to do those kinds of customization, making it easy, making the whole development tool chain a little easier is good. And like having yeah. developed a couple of device drivers for the Linux kernel for obscure hardware way back in the day, um, they made it really easy for developers. And it's very easy to like, okay, this thing doesn't belong in the kernel, but you need to build your own thing. It's not an impossible task right. um, the way that it is for some of the other stuff. So. That's really cool. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's uh, wow. Lots to think about. Lots of homework now. I love. That's what I love about talking about home lab stuff. It's like I always end up like jotting <laughs> up. That's that a good idea. That's a good idea, and then I know what I'm doing later. So my Jordan favorite parts. Get my your hands on the hardware. <laughs> my favorite thing about home lab and like if you organize your documents and you organize your files. Like I had, I had a media collection that I stopped using for a few years because it was like, ah, oh, streaming services are good enough. They no longer are. And guess what? I've dusted off my old media collection. And so it's just yep. like, yes. That's what I'm guess what we're having a conversation about later today. <laughs> yeah. It's like the next thing me and Jay were, we have a uh, two o'clock that we're doing. And it's yeah. about that because uh, in uh, there's actually, even since Chase invited me to that, there's been like two more companies that have really screwed up. Um, Crunchyroll, I think, is one of them. But they're just oh, really, I didn't know about yeah. them. Yeah, I got a list and I got, oh, I got, a, I got notes I made because it's kind of crazy. All these companies that you paid for, you bought the media. Now you have no way you couldn't download it, and now the subscriptions you bought and your ability to view those are gone. And it's coming at quite a question. I know PlayStation uh, is one of them that did this. Yep. Some of the media bought and it's. It's kind of sad. I mean, we we talk about we like retro games and we talk about being one of the golden era of yep. gaming, but it's because it's the last time you can own your media. Games released today are so tied to these licensed servers and everything else, or only work with activation with an online server or interact with that server so once that server goes away the game itself becomes useless so 20 years from now we weren't going to play those same games that we're right. playing in 2024 um they're not a lot of local install games i'm hoping to see a resurgence in that but it's really interesting because the whole concept of media ownership like the streaming service were supposed to solve it and they didn't the lawyers and got involved yeah. <laughs> the minute you introduce complexity into leisure time you failed I don't care yeah. if it's a game or a movie, music or a TV show, whatever it is you're into, you listen, watch, whatever to unwind. Nobody wants to think about finances during that time. They don't want to think about work during that time. It's their escape. But now, you know, they're being nickeled and dimed at every single opportunity, constantly having to think about the money aspect of it. They don't even know if the season they're in the middle of is going to be there tomorrow for them to finish it. And that's the world we live in. So that's just... Um, 
very unsettling. But we we have we'll have a lot to say about that. That is that is a side yeah. mission for all of our audiences and all yeah. of our content. Is we we probably should put more of an effort into organizing our audiences around getting our Congress critters to enshrine in law the first sale doc doctrine as it exists for books for digital media. Right. Great idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The the way I look at it, if I buy a Blu-ray from the store, it's up to me to keep it safe. If I yeah. step on it, my fault. If I lose it, my fault. It's my responsibility. But when someone else <clears throat> is holding on to my media for me, I, I just like you were saying, I want to see better stewardship of this. You know, I, I want to see responsibility here because I'm not trying to lose an investment. I want the right to format shift the media enshrined in law, period. Yes, yeah. absolutely agree. Yep. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, one day we'll have it. I actually feel positive about the future. So. <laughs> it's, all, it's up to it's only it will only we will only have it one day if we mobilize our audiences and yeah. demand it because otherwise we're just going to be we're going to continue to be the slow boiling frogs that we are. And we, we've already <laughs> yeah, seen was, the future. We're living it. Yeah, we're living it's it. Offensive to me when so when when Sony announced what they announced, and this last thing I'll say about it, I'll get get off my soapbox. Um, obviously, in the end user license agreement, they had the right to do this, blah, blah, blah. But I still think there should have been a bigger outcry from people. People should have been, everyone should have been screaming. It's like people were too complacent about losing their investment. It, it, sure, it was all over the news, but it was not that big. It was just kind of a barely a blip in Sony's um, controversy history. Yeah. And that's surprising to me because I, I feel like everyone should just make sure they understand that, that this isn't acceptable, but as long as we let them do it, they're going to keep doing it. So that was, that was true with books as well. It's like when they, yeah. before the first sale doctrine, it was just, they got away with a lot in terms of like, well, you agreed not to resell this book when you bought it and we're the only place you can buy the book. So you have to agree to it. There's a lot of that same sort of, we're going to hold you hostage with all of this. You have no choice. Like, what are you going to do? Not use Amazon. What are you going to do? Not use Google. And then the, the hilarious, well, not hilarious, but, you know, kind of hilarious story. It's ironic and it's hilarity. 1984 being taken off of everybody's, um, you know, Kindle <laughs> a long time ago, which was like the, the the worst possible book that you could take off of people's devices. Yeah. I'm a follower you know. of Corey Doctorow. And I, I do like, I think he refers it to as not just the enshittification cycle, but also felony contempt of business model. Yeah. <laughs> Where you you are treated in a very poor way. Uh, he's um his late his last couple books uh, about that. Seize the means of computation. Great book, along with uh, his choke point capitalism. But he talks tons about media ownership rights. I read both of them, and it's just your head's spinning when you're like, God, these companies are bad. <laughs> That's yeah. <what laughs> yeah, they will literally do what they're allowed to do under the law as amoral and yeah, uh, and they are determined to write worse laws c continuously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not sustainable. Like we we have like the fact that we have large language models that will enable the individual to have agency like they have never had before, which is incredible. And so it's like let's put it to work. <laughs> How long until we tell something like a, a language model to create a TV series centered around this kind of character with this kind of storyline and this it's, setting, and the next thing you know we're just watching it. And we yeah, just but it regurgitates. It it's not original. It regurgitates. I, know, I wish. I can wish. <laughs> Maybe in 50 years. There was a joke that I made uh, when I first appeared on the internet, which is the, the at the rate we're going, we're going to be able to just say, all right, take Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, replace all the characters with Danny DeVito or Nicolas Cage, and, <laughs> you know, let me see. And that's, a, you can, you were so close to that. Yeah. So close, breathtakingly <laughs> close to that. 
So I don't have to sync uh, the dark side of the moon to Wizard of Oz manually anymore. Okay. So somebody did uh, Danny DeVito from Always Sunny in Baldur's Gate three, and it was just it's amazing. It's just incredible. That sounds great. My favorite one so far was was uh, the cable guy in Cyberpunk. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, that was the best. Ah, uh, this is great. All right. Once again, Wendell, thank you so much for your oh, thank uh, you for time on your day. Yep, That's great. Our pleasure. We'll see you around and uh thanks. Thank thanks you. Everyone. See ya.